Hello and welcome to this episode of Superhero Ethics. Today, Paul Hoppe joins me for a discussion of tropes in TV and movies. We're talking about the role that they play and how they can be subverted. We're asking, can chess be a superpower? And we're talking about what is the nature of redemption and forgiveness and conquering one's demons. All this in a discussion of the new Netflix show, The Queen's Gambit. Right after this commercial break, we have no control over. Welcome back. This is Matthew, your host. And as I mentioned today, we're talking about a show that is a little bit outside the realm of what we normally get into, uh, The Queen's Gambit. But there's a couple of reasons for that. Um, one is that Paul suggested it, and I, I seem, he seems to have charm speak when it comes to me in that regard. Um, but, but more importantly, um, Paul and I had for a while been wanting to talk about the nature of tropes in media, and especially in the kind of genre media that this, this show focuses on. And this show, um, uh, Queen's Gambit, actually does some really interesting things in terms of the way it explores and subverts some tropes. And especially, and as Paul's going to discuss later, while it is not a traditional superhero story, it is about a, a basically a chess prodigy, a young woman who from a very early age is incredibly gifted in chess and spends most of the episode as kind of like the origin story of a chess superhero. Um, so it is a bit of a stretch, but I think it's, um, A, we don't have a ton of new content right now, and so we're <laughs> widening the doors. But I do think that there's a lot of great discussions here, and, and frankly, you know, um, as... People who are into the the kind of things we're into, probably a lot of us have a you know some time in a chess club, some time in our in our background, or have been opening up a chess app at some point in time. But even if you have no interest in the game of chess, uh, I think the show is quite enjoyable, and I think you're going to get a lot out of our discussion today. So, Paul, welcome. Um, how are you doing today, and what made the show one you wanted to dive into? Um, I'm doing well, thanks. Uh, I think what made this show. Uh, one that I wanted to dive into was I watched it in about seven hours from when it was released. And <laughs> that's about how long the show is. So I was just like, oh, maybe I'll look at this show. And then I just kind of got just like stuck in it and kind of like transfixed and just watched the whole thing right away. I mean, in t- and what made me think about this podcast as I was watching the show one was I think Matthew might like this, and we like to talk about things that we watch, and we'll do that <laughs> on the show. Um, but, you know, another one is, like, Beth Harmon is a superhero, and she has a yeah. tragic backstory. She develops a power most other mere mortals cannot achieve. She goes through struggles where she's not sure she wants to continue using her power. Then she finally overcomes her demons, and with some help from her friends, defeats her ultimate foe. And, you know, maybe she's not directly trying to, like, help people the way most superheroes are. Um, I would argue that she she does, you know, create a positive benefit in the world, just, mm-hmm. like, with her existence and being herself. But, like, that whole paragraph, basically, is just, it's, to some extent, it's like a list of tropes. Um, yeah. Of super, you know, of, of, like, superhero story, origin story kind of tropes. But at the same time... I felt like the show did a really good job of not just following exactly, um, you know, the the way, like the kind of formula, the very basic formula, even though when Definitely. you just like phrase it that way, it kind of comes out that way. For sure. I mean, I think one of the things I found most striking about the show was the number of times it set me up in what I thought would be what, what the trope would do and then didn't pay it off in quite the same way. Right. And, and also that it... Um, and we'll get more into this in a second, but it also, I think, also really highlighted for me how much the tropes that we think of as so dominant today 
are in many ways, you know, only 10 or 20 years old. Because right. in, in some ways, th- this is from a book that was written in the 80s, and it's it's very tr- – it, it, it fills a lot of the tropes of that period, mm-hmm. but not a lot of more modern ones. Um, but before we get into that, I want to give a, a quick summary of what happens in the story uh, and say – we will be spoiling the show. I think it's a very good show. I think show. I just did. Well, yeah. Um, you know, and I think um, to, to some extent, I feel like it's a show where, um, again, tropishness, like, there's not any huge plot twists that I think come completely out of left field. And I think most of the plot marks are fairly predictable. Um, and what makes the show so good is the way that it gets there and the and the, the characters and the the, the the way it's all played out. Mm-hmm. Um, but that being said, I think so if if you're not ever planning to watch the show or that you, you are planning to watch the show but you can kind of guess what it's going to be about already, please listen in. Um, if you do think you're going to watch the show at some point you don't want to get spoiled, please press pause because we will be spoiling it all. Um, but I'd strongly recommend watching it and then this will still be waiting for you. Come on back in uh, um, seven hours. <laughs> or if you're perhaps a little bit more normal about these things, uh, you know. A week, one tomorrow, a day. Okay. or you know, tomorrow. like a couple weeks yeah, or whatever. Sure. <laughs> the internet is forever. We'll be here for you, whatever. But so, quick summary of the plot, um, and of course, it will not be quick, but I'll do my best. <laughs> Beth Harmon is a young girl in uh, Kentucky in the 1950s. Her mother is living in a trailer, and obviously, fight. There's a you know, not doing very well mentally, uh, and having real conflict with her father. Um, and then with Beth's her, father, just to with Beth's father, yeah. yeah. Um, the, and then the mother and daughter are riding in a car, and there's a terrible car accident, um, and uh, the mother dies, and Beth is unharmed. Um, Beth is then taken to an orphanage where uh, – and, and here was where I think kind of the first trope was really subverted. It's an orphanage that is a 1950s orphanage, and it's not great by any means, and they give the kids tranquilizers to help keep yeah. them calm. But – I kept expecting to see all of the terrible things, you know, for the girls to just be heartless, evil bullies or the teachers to be, you know, impossibly cruel and mean. Or um, while at the orphanage, she winds up befriending uh, an older man who's clearly um, he's a janitor. He's socially awkward, but he's good at chess and he teaches her chess. And just, you know, I mean, the way shows are today, I kept waiting for him to be inappropriate in some way for her. That never happened. You know, it's it's. It's an orphanage. It's a shitty situation, but it is what it is. Um, she gets adopted into a family. Again, some problems here occur. Um, the husband winds up very, very clear that he didn't really want the child. The mother is, um, you know, not great by any means um, and kind of has her own problems with drugs and, and, and alcohol primarily. But along the way, Beth has gotten very, very good at chess and now starts to, you know, really dive into the chess world at a very young age. And... At the age of, I think, 9 or 10, she, um, with the help of that janitor from before, wins the state championship. Uh, um, no, so when she's 9 or 10, she does the simultaneous exhibition. That's correct. Beats okay. a bunch of kids at, like, the high school or something. And then I think she's 15 when she um, goes to the first, like, real competition. Okay. Yeah, she, she's still quite young, and she beats quite a lot of adults, um, but also beats some people who are just a couple years older than her. And then most of the story is about her making her way through the chess world while wrestling with her demons of, um, you know, a lot of it's alcoholism and drug abuse, uh, tranquilizers specifically. But also the show does um, a, a really incredible job of showing the effects of childhood trauma on a young person. And 
she's never diagnosed, but she um, certainly exhibits a lot of symptoms that I think today would be understood as, you know, somewhere in the realm of PTSD or borderline or things like that. Um, she has great trouble connecting with people in a lot of ways, and that affects her relationships in a lot of ways, especially romantically with people. Um, you know, and, and, and so the, the course of the show, and, and the other thing about her is that she is so, fan- I was going to say fanatically, and I think in some ways that's accurate, dedicated to chess that it is, there's not, really nothing else in her life. And her biggest struggles are often when she will get to incredible heights of chess, but, you know, become second best in the in the state or the nation or something like that and it is really crushing to her um and and so as the course of the story goes on she she starts to develop relationships with people uh those relationships don't go well in part because she has such trouble connecting with people um and in one case someone has trouble connecting with her her alcoholism and her drug uh, her tranquilizer use get worse and worse the mother dies things go even further downhill there's all sorts of assorted family drama and until she really kind of gets to a very bad place where she's you know, drinking all the time, thinking of quitting chess. And a couple of the men in her life try to connect with her and try to kind of reach out to her and save her, and they're they're not really able to reach her. And it's when her childhood friend, Jolene, um, a black girl who she was at the orphanage with, kind of comes back into her life to, to really kind of uh, help her and help her get things turned around. Again here, um, somewhat subverting a trope because Jolene, I think, does somewhat fall into the magic Negro kind of trope, but also really doesn't in some important ways and is a lot more self-actualized in ways I really appreciated. But the point being, she helps her get herself cleaned up. She eventually goes, gets back into the chess world and in a, you know, wonderfully 1980s kind of inspirational kind of scene, all the guys who have been kind of her, her both either lovers or friends and, and often uh, opponents in chess many of whom she did not part on good terms with, all kind of rally around her and support her. And she's able to defeat the Russian who's been her, her nemesis and, you know, celebration scene. Um, so I, I, I skipped over a lot of important details and we'll get more into the, the, the depth of her story as we go on. But Paul, is that you think, a fairly accurate um, uh, recitation of like the, the, the main arc of the story here? Yeah, I mean, I think that was a, a solid, like, you know, one page kind of, summation of, yeah. <laughs> of basically you know uh what happens yeah so i wanted to dive more into tropes but let's just take another moment or two to talk about the show itself and what we liked so much about it um i, I think for me as, as i mentioned i really did love the um how relatable her 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 dealing with trauma is um i've talked before about some of my own mental struggles i found her character incredibly relatable um, especially in the, the, uh, some of the problems she has and the way sometimes she cuts people out of her life. Um, definitely things that I did at, at a point in my life that I'm, I'm certainly not proud to look back on. Um, but I, one of the things that I thought was really interesting was they show her as that there's a real kind of almost connection between her tragic backstory and her soup, as you called it, her superpower with chess, that she is in part because she's so withdrawn in the world able to really kind of go very deep into her own head and and just kind of play chess in her mind, uh, these beautiful scenes where she's playing it on the ceiling in her mind. Um, what what was your kind of take on how, how they connected those dots and, and showed her development? So I think, um, I mean, I really loved how the story tied those two elements together, but also kind of oscillated between them. You know, mm-hmm. you, you had the, you know, everything else in her life and then chess. Right. But 
her, I think her sort of, I'd, you know, you said fanatical, I'd say basically obsession with the game, yeah. um, which, you know, doesn't have to be a negative thing, right? It's, yeah, I think it's a better word. I think the way that anyone gets truly amazing at a thing is to spend just countless hours, not just doing the thing, not just learning and, and um, actively engaging with it, but also just you can see that she's like subconsciously it's, it's always in her head. And um, you know, I mean, I, I'm not a amazing chess player by any stretch, but I have had periods when I, looked at a whole lot of chess content, played a whole lot of games. And like when I go to sleep, I see pieces or like have dreams of them. And given that that's her life constantly, basically from when she's nine until, I don't know, 18 or 20 or wherever she is at the end of the, the series. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, that's, that's just gotta be kind of constantly. It's like, it's a part of her that she takes with her because she doesn't need a chessboard there to play a game of chess, right? She can she can play through a game in her mind. She can, I mean, that that's like the, the way you play chess is by being able to envision what the pieces are going to do. And right. I think there's something about, you know, she has this trauma and she has pretty much constantly a very difficult um, life situation, but never, like after the trauma, it's never like, um, what's a good way to put it? It it feels like it's never, it's not like constantly infringing on her ability to think, right? Like she's not being physically tortured. She's not being physically abused. Um, Things aren't great. She doesn't have a lot of friends. You know, she's got her one really good friend um, at the orphanage, Jolene. And then, you know, she's got her adoptive mother later who at first they're very distant, but then they're very, you know, kind of together, but still distant because... You know, I mean, Beth spends so much time thinking through all these variations, thinking chess games in her head that, you know, if she's sitting there thinking that, like, she's probably not talking to someone very much, right? Um, Yeah, there's an old um, saying that I've often heard, often in regard to, like, drugs or alcohol, but I think can be applied to almost anything, which is the question to be asked is, what does it do for you versus what does it do to you? mm -hmm. Um, and this is kind of what you're saying. Like, I think you're right. Being obsessed with any particular thing is by no means a bad thing. It, it, I think the questions become what's the source of the obsession and what is it doing to you? And I think my take on it, at least with Beth, is that at least at first, chess is very much an escape. Oh, you know, 100%. it's a way to be not thinking about the death of her mother and, and all the terrible things that happened. We, we do, by the way, find out later um, although maybe some people who are smarter than me figured out earlier that her uh, her mother's death is a suicide, yeah, um, and possibly an attempt to kill the daughter as well. Um, oh yeah, it's hundred percent likely. To yeah, me. She, she's like, she, what she, am she I going to do with you? Oh what? yeah, she's in a situation where she can no longer support the the, the daughter in part because of the father being estranged and, and all sorts of things about that. Um, but yeah, I think I think it's very much an escape, and and then continues to be as a like, in a way in a way that I think I, I I've definitely seen happen before of. You know, as you were kind of saying, like, because she's so focused on chess, she's not really doing much socializing. And now it becomes kind of a spiral or a cycle because it's now I never learned how to socialize because I was so busy focusing on chess and because of all this trauma that happened to me. So now attempting to learn how to socialize means going into these social situations that are very uncomfortable. That seems like a terrible idea. I'll just still keep focusing on chess. Right. Um, 
and and she does go into some of those situations and and is basically welcomed into them and then she's sort of like what's this this is stupid yeah <laughs> and then you know swipes a bottle of liquor and leaves yeah like, like there's one scene where she's invited to be like at first like you know her high school is very kind of tropey not tropey but very kind of clickish and at first like she's not really welcome with it with the clicks until she becomes kind of a celebrity because mm-hmm. she is you know this young you know chess prodigy who's getting written about in the news all the time and so the cool kids kind of invite her to their party but they're all doing these things that she has no real connection to you know they're they're gossiping about boys they're they're like enjoying tv and, and music and movies that she has no connection to um and so yeah i feel like it's, it's she's kind of dips her toe and is like yeah and and one of the things i think is really interesting is most of the people who she then meets later in the movie are people for whom this question of what role does chess play in my life and what role do I want it to play and is that healthy is a major part of the discussion, you know? And, yeah, you know, one of those characters, Beltic, um, is someone who she defeats early on and um, he's kind of like an arrogant ass and he, he really kind of calms down. And we find out later he's had this massive crush on her for many years. And, you know, she winds up going to bed with him and they have kind of a nice connection for a little while, although she once again, has no real ability to, to connect on a kind of, like, intimate level beyond bodies. Um, but, you know, we find out he really is kind of over chess, and he, he kind of gets to a point where he thinks chess is doing more harm to him than good. Um, and, and she's still not in that place. That's part of why they drift apart. Um, and, and so, yeah, I think that was another thing I thought really interesting was the way it really explores... It doesn't say, like, her chess is bad and she should stop having chess, but it kind of says that what what she needs to do is to be at a place where chess can be a major but not the only part of her life and that can be one that she has kind of control over instead of it being like you know it it can be a thing that she loves and enjoys rather than a like i hate myself if i'm not good at chess kind of thing right i mean well so i'd say i I, i'm not sure i a hundred percent agree um in terms of like I, I feel like she doesn't necessarily need a bunch of other things in her life. Like maybe that's just the main thing that she, she just, that's what she's interested in. You know, right. I, I think that's fine. I don't think that there's any real like need for other interests. I mean, she has some small I, I, I would mean but... human connection and like, right. I, I, I guess to well, me, it's two things. One is the human connection, but the other part is and an early part in the movie. And again, this is one that I, I could really relate to. When she loses, or even when she thinks she's losing, it is obviously this huge blow to her self-image and her yes. ego. And she she goes into a, a bathroom at one point and is, you know, kind of yelling at herself as like, you ugly piece of trash. Um, right. Because she might not be able to become the state champion. Right. Um, so, so the part that I 100% agree with is that she needs to find a way to not have all of her self-esteem come from basically being an invincible chess player like she can have some of or most of her self-esteem even come from being great at the game come or even just have her identity wrapped in up in like this is what i do this is what i care about you know i am great at this um but like you know at some point you you lose games right like like the the best in the world lose games a lot and I mean, sure, Magnus Carlsen had like a two year plus undefeated streak recently. <laughs> and Ding Loren had one of like over a hundred games and Bobby Fischer had a long ass one too. Um, but like the the point being is like 
you're going to lose some games because right. other people are trying also, right? And some, you know, and there's also eventually there's going to be someone younger and quicker and whatever. And, you know, the the point being that, like, there's there's some ground between, like, I can't invest myself too fully in this pursuit compared to, like, I have, you know, I'm getting all of my self-esteem just from winning, specifically right. from winning, right? Um, like, you can take, I've seen players talk about the greatest games of their life or one of the greatest games they ever played, and it was a loss, you know? Right. And they were, like, super proud of their loss because they played in, like, an immortal game. And it, it takes two players to create an immortal game, right? Yeah. It's like, one player has to, like, if I'm not giving you brilliant moves to play against, you can't really come up with something that's really brilliant. You're just like, oh, I just win because you're not that good, right? Because right. you made a the, mistake. The brilliance is in overcoming a challenge, and exactly. if you're both challenge, if you if you're both challenging each other in amazing, amazing ways, yeah, like the, no, no one gets famous. And and this it's interesting. We talked about her as a superhero. In many ways, I feel like the the trope that she really embodies, this movie, this show really embodies, is the sports hero idea. You oh know? yeah, and that yeah, yeah, any great you know like. Any great boxing match, any great baseball game, football game, whatever it is, you know, chess is a it is a mental competition, and, and which many people would look at as a sport in that regard. Yeah. Um, but it certainly fits that story element of, and and I think one thing they're very intentional about this in that the last scene of the whole series is her, you know, she's getting talked to about how now she's this American hero because she defeated the commies and all this kind of stuff, and she just gets out of the car and walks a bit through the streets of <laughs> Moscow. And walks to a place where people are just – old men are playing chess in the park. And she sits down and with such a huge smile on her face, like they all welcome her and are like, come play. We, we know who you yeah. are. You're amazing. And she just has so much joy on her face as she yeah. starts the game. And, I, yeah. and to me, a lot of that was about her rediscovering the fun of this. Is that kind of your take on it as well? Yeah, for sure. It's like – She's there to pl – I mean, like, she's probably going to win, right? <laughs> like, <Yeah. laughs> she just defeated the world champion. Like, she'll probably win. But, like, it feels like she's not there because she, like, needs to win. It's like – it feels like at that point, she's like, I love this game, and I see this park filled with, you know, these old men who all love this game. Like, they're here. It's probably cold outside. And she's like, I'm going to sit here and play because we all love this game. And – um, and that's like, that transcends the whole, like beating the world champion that transcends like the journey of, um, just getting good or whatever. It's, it's like, it's like kind of the, like for love of the game kind of moment. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I, I thought it was uh, just a, a perfect ending. Yeah. Um, Be, especially because I found it, surprising too, actually. Yeah. I mean, it was, I mean, it, it's a happy ending. Like, that, right, that alone, right, exactly. It's funny because, and it, uh, we'll start to shift into trope talk now, but like, it, it very much is, it reminded me that the trope used to be the person has some demons, they never get that bad, um, they hurt people along the way, but the people come back and still love them and still help them and support them, and with their support, they overcome the bad guy and win. Right. And, like, yeah, that's very much a trope, but it felt super surprising to me because now... Like if this if this movie were made now, we're going to talk a bit later about the redemption stuff. It would have been much more grim, dark. You know, it would have been like she loses everything and all the people she ever loved turn on her. And just at the moment where she's maybe going to be getting her life back together, um, you know, one of the people she hurt comes back and like hurts her, and that makes everything fall apart. You know, it would have been just like a much more harrowing 
story. And it's funny because, you know, 20 years ago, I was super sick of the the hero always wins kind of trope. Today, I found this incredibly refreshing because I was like, oh, yeah, sometimes people can just do a good thing and it's okay. <laughs> like, and it's, it, 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 it's to me, it was interesting just how much that is a, a change in the kind of stories we normally get these days. Yeah, I mean, this was written in 1984, you know, um, you know when the, the, the book, not the series, but yeah, right, it's ba- right, right. It's based so, on a book written in 1984. Right. To clarify, it was it was uh, it's based on a book written by Walter Tevis, um, who also wrote the you know the book that um, the Hustler and the Color of Money uh, were mm. based on, and um, actually 1983, I think, is the publication date, but. So it it was then it was going to be adapted for like a long time. Um, And I think Heath Ledger was actually going to do it at some point. I don't think he was going to play the title character, the main character, but uh, (laughs) I think he was going to be attached in some way. Um, But it, you know, ultimately it became a Netflix series and, you know, I I don't know how, how exactly it it tracks to the book. I I mean, obviously I'm, I'm sure there's some differences, but you know, it, it does seem like in nineteen in in the eighties, like people were mostly. If you wrote something about you know uh, U.S. sports people, they were probably going to beat the Soviets, right? Like, yeah. um, and now it seems like we're in an era when you know everything is. It's like you're you're not really getting a lot of happy endings, and I'd say a lot of the tropes now are kind of counter tropes yeah. to like prior tropes, right? And personally, I like happy stories i like seeing stories where someone goes through a lot and then ends up okay um i don't want every story to be like that but i also don't want every story to be just like you know depressing and i mean it's a heavy show you know and and i mean you're calling it a movie some it's basically like a seven hour movie right it's a limited series this isn't season one this is the season this is it it's seven episodes which I also love so much. Me too. Much, it's way. like it's like at the end it's like okay, we're done. I really enjoyed it. I get it to end like that. There's no cliffhanger. There's no oh, but what happens next? Like I can think, "Oh, but what happens next?" I get to decide, you know? You get yeah. to decide. Like does she go and talk to all her exes? Like do they still harbor some resentments, but they're like they got over it just for the minute? Like we don't know. We can we can think through that yeah. ourselves, right? But like there's a there's an end point. <laughs> it's well, like it's- I'm and, tired of there not being endpoints sometimes. Yeah, and and so now we're um we're talking more about the the trope aspect. Let, let's back up into like the discussion of tropes themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and let me just try to use like what when we say that word, like I think a lot of people have a vague understanding of it, but it's hard to narrow down. What what do you what is a trope in your mind? Yeah, so they're basically plot conventions, plot devices, like narrative tools, um, kind of like patterns that mm-hmm. um a show, a movie a novel, whatever, will frequently fall into, you know, and they can be things like, you know, a mentor dying before the hero reaches their potential or like uh, villains killing off their henchmen to show like how badass they are. Those are like two of my least favorite tropes. Um, They can also be simple things like swashbuckler in a long coat, which, you know, is one of my favorite tropes, (laughs) even though it's like whatever. Um, Or like, you know, vanquished foes becoming lifelong allies and, all four of those tropes, uh, you know, um, aside from the villain killing the henchman, um, are, show up here, right? But, right. Um, yeah, I mean, it's basically just like a thing that you expect might happen because you've seen it happen in a bunch of other uh, media. Right. Like, any time where 
the pieces start getting moved and you can pretty easily predict what's going to happen. Like if you've ever been in that sort of thing of like, oh, all of a sudden we're emphasizing the the emotional weight of this particular side character. And you're like, okay, that person's about to die. <laughs> right, exactly. That's a trope, you know? Yeah. And, and it can be a very particular, like just a specific scene kind of a thing. Um, and it can also be like a, a larger, you know, idea in media. Like um, the, we, I've talked before about the concept of fridging. Right. That's very much a trope, you know, yes, the idea that yes. a, a woman character exists to primarily have her death be a motivation for a male character or the, the magic Negro term that I used before of the like the person of color who exists mostly to be a source of great wisdom and, and a little bit sort of like, you know, offbeat knowledge for our main character. That's a trope. Right. Um, the happy ending in when it's like you're always going to have a happy ending somehow, you know, that's a trope. In the same way that now the grim dark of like, you know, something will, you know, there's so many series right now where, you know, you'll face a challenge the entire series and in the last episode you overcome the challenge. But just when it seems like our heroes can sit back and, you know, have their shawarma and enjoy whatever it is, you know, the next terrible thing comes. Like, you know, the flash and the arrow did this all the time. That can be a trope. Um so, so what's wrong with tropes? What, why, why is this something we're talking about as like not always a great part of, of media that we love? Yeah, so I mean, there's nothing like inherently wrong with any particular, de- well, I'll take that back. There's, there's certain devices that, you know, can be awful because they're like, you know, racist or sexist or whatever. Um, right. But when they're playing on stereotypes and it's sort of like, like the, right. you know, and the woman is a is a shrew or the black character is a drug dealer like those kind of things right exactly and sometimes i i think there's a little bit of um you know overlap but a distinction between stereotypes and and tropes like where a stereotype is like you know this person with this particular aspect of their identity is like this because people with this aspect of their identity are usually like this or whatever right, right. um but you know a a trope i i think usually is a little bit more of a a narrative device and um you know if you're just like trope 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 like you know your your story is just going to be very predictable right if you're just constantly um you know following it's like you know the third way trope it's like oh but we have to do this or do this it's like but wait we'll do this other thing it's like okay um you know that's cool you know and a lot of times like the first time somebody does something it's like well that's it's not really a trope yet. It's just a thing, yeah. right? It's a, it's an original idea. Like the twist ending. Like someone had the first twist ending, right? Okay. And then and people are like, whoa. But then it's like, you know, you get to a point and if you're just like, okay, but what's the... Tw-? Ah, there it is, you know? I mean, Casablanca is one of my favorite movies in the world. And it's always funny to me to watch it with, with people who don't really know it well because I'll know a lot of people who are like, this movie is so cliche. It's so boring, <laughs> you know? And they're like, no, but this is where the cliches come right, from. Right, right, right. <laughs> exactly. Know? Like, Exactly. Um, that's so not entirely true. Like some of it was probably drawing on its own tropes, but it really sure. a lot of like movie tropes that were big for many, many decades come from that movie. You know, right? Um, and, and and so I think the the kind of you know the problem is like I mean you can have problematic tropes that are just problematic in the first place, but um, more frequently I think it's you know you could call it lazy writing, but like sometimes it's just kind of uninspired and if it's if you don't have like real characters going Mm -hmm. through these different situations um if you just lean into every trope that's kind of presented then things just become very predictable and kind of kind of boring i think right um 
And one thing that I would say that The Queen's Gambit does very well is it sets you up, at, you know, as you said already, it sets you up for a bunch of tropes that then don't happen. Yeah. So that then when something does happen that seems predictable, um, it's not really predictable in the same way because you feel like, or at least I felt like, oh, well, I feel like this is probably going to happen now, but they've already not gone in a particular direction or not gone in the direction I expected so many times mm -hmm. that then when they do go in the direction that I would have first guessed, it's almost like a surprise because it's not a surprise because the other things were a surprise. Yeah, I think I'll, I'll use two examples of that. One is, and it's funny because I hadn't even thought of it until you mentioned it, one of the tropes that you really don't like, this movie kind of uses, this show kind of uses, mm -hmm. um, the mentor dying halfway through the story. Right. Um, you know, Beth's uh, adopted mother who, and even, even I mean, if you back up a second, because there's another trope here, um, the mother and, and Beth are very disconnected in part because the husband has left and the mother is falling into drinking. And, and so Beth is really seeing the same pattern that happened with her birth mother happening and is really getting concerned by it. Yeah. Um, and then Beth, um, you know, wins a tournament and gets a lot of money because of it. And the mother's eyes kind of light up. And I remember I said to Paul, like, oh, OK, here we go. Now we're going to get the, like, dance mom, you know, soccer mom trope. Um, and we sort of do. But but here's the thing is it's not just the paint by numbers like the mother's terrible. The mother pushes her to play chess like they have an actual complicated, nuanced relationship. Yeah that falls broadly under, you know, soccer mom, but it's much more complicated than that, you know, and that there are times when you don't have the scenes of the daughter of Beth thinking, maybe I don't want to play chess anymore. And the mom be like, no, you have to like, the, that's kind of what I think of the trope. And here it subverts that. Um, but where I was really going with this is, you know, that trope I, of like the men, go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna say, I think more like stage mom than, than soccer mom. Right. Like, yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I think it, it's, Anytime a child has an incredible talent at something and the parent is very invested in the child being good at it, sometimes to the point where it is more so than the child. Right. And that right, where yeah. there's a slippery slope of is the parent doing it to help the child get their dreams or because the parent is living out their own dreams or because the parent wants to get money or you know, right. all that to me. It's yeah, it's stage mom. It's soccer yeah. mom. It's dance mom. I, it's, I just think of soccer mom as being something different like sort of like suburb like oh, taking yeah, sure. kids to their regular activities as opposed to like star soccer player mom kind of yeah and no, I, th I think that's actually a very very um a fitting uh fitting distinction there um but but yeah it so it subverts that trope but then also when she dies it, it, it is it is the trope of you know the mentor dies and now the hero doesn't really know what to do with themselves anymore but but part of what it reminds me of it's... is that I mean, tropes are based in reality, you know? Right, right. And, and the thing, the problem isn't that you shouldn't ever do that thing. It's that when you only do that thing, A, you're really limiting the, like, you're saying that, like, you know, sometimes when A happens, B happens. Mm -hmm. But if every story is if A, then B, then now you make A very boring, you know? And, and right. this was kind of a, like, yeah, we are going to say if A, then B, but in a way that, that because so many other A's haven't led to B's. This this one works. Right, exactly. And I, I would say that it's like it's like the, the mentor dies before Hero like reaches potential or whatever, but like she's really not a mentor. She's yeah, like she knows nothing about chess. She's right. she's a she's she a guardian, really, but Yeah, exactly. She's a legal guardian and like 
a friend. You know, mm-hmm. I think she, like, she really doesn't do a lot of, like, mothering, really. Um, and she, I, I, but, like, she's a person, you know? She loves to play piano, but she never really did. Or she used to be nervous in front of people, like, so she didn't really go into that. And, you know, she she lost a child. We don't know the details of that, but we can see that there's a there's a weight from that, right? Right. Um, that, that her relationship, you know, it seems couldn't, couldn't, um survive and so it's like this is a character with depth even though she doesn't really say a lot of words and so the whole you know the relationship works because it's somewhat complicated it does trade in things that are kind of common and you and you expect to see but then there's some other things that are less common and you don't expect to see so it feels feels real and and that's you know and so also the tropes it's like yeah when when then it's like oh you know, she's dead, and it's the scene that felt very much like when, like, Buffy's mom is dead, you know? Like, yeah. it's just, she's there, like, with her eyes open, it's like, oh. And, but, well, like... Especially because th- there's two things there. One is that, as you said, the mother has played piano but never really been heard and never really gotten to do it. Mm-hmm. And so, basically, there, there's three scenes that happen. There's, um, Beth comes down on her way to go play this major tournament against her old rival, and um, uh, she finds her mother playing and a whole bunch of people are like listening to her and her mother's like finally getting this moment of actualization. Right. Yeah. And I said to Paul, she's about to die. Um, <laughs> I was like, because <laughs> that's very Actually, much a trope. LOL, but... You know, that part's very much a trope. Right. And then yeah. um, then Beth goes off and wins this great tournament and come home, comes home to find her mother dead. And I was like, oh, that's another trope, you know, and like. I'll be honest, that scene probably didn't hit for me as hard because I was a little like, oh, yep, there, she's going to die now. Right, um, right. I think she lost, I think... though. Say again. But, oh, no, she lost. No, yeah. that's right. Yeah, so it's a double thing. It's and like, she's, she... like, complaining to her. She says, ah, blah, 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 mom, mom. Oh, you're dead. Yeah, and, and, and so it, it winds up being a very powerful moment because it's, you know, she just had what she thinks is this terrible tragedy, and then she experiences an actual tragedy. Right. Um, And I think it's an important moment for her, but... But yeah, it was it was kind of a tropey thing, and and I think it's you know it, it can be good or bad. I, I want to back up also a second because I think for some of those who are you know we've talked about this being a a, a superpower, but some people may still be like you're, you're kind of off the pretty far out of bounds here in what you talk about. Um, I think part of why we wanted to bring this topic up to begin with is that tropes come up in all kinds of media, but they are very prevalent in superhero media and science fiction and the kind of stuff that's a little bit more in the the normal wheelhouse of what we talk about. Yeah. Um, I mean, the, the, the one thing that actually made it made me feel that connection the most is kind of the, like the training sequences and the, the, like the process of acquiring and getting really good at whatever, like the character's power is essentially. Um, and those are so, those are like my favorite, um scenes and like the the uh the first spider-man movie you know where it's like trying to figure out how to use his webs which you know apparently come out of his wrists instead of web shooters but like you know it's there's this like joy and this like um kind of mystery of like you know what are my powers let me get better at them let me you know train and like training sequences too you know um I mean, we had one in the the wonderful uh, Batman vs Superman, but <laughs> um, I just need to troll Matthew every, you know, at least once an episode. But <laughs> how are you trolling uh, me? I don't let you. 
Oh, I was saying that it was a wonderful movie. Um, oh, I don't think it's I, a wonderful movie. I, that's the trolling part. Okay, I'll work on my trolling. But... <laughs> that's fine. That's fine. Zack Maybe Schneider I... has been trolled, which is something we've not done in a while, so we can check that box. All right. Cool, cool. Um, so, you know, it, it's like that process of getting really good um, – and and like training and and you know that's a trope like the training sequence or training sequences is a trope like the you know um developing one's powers and and um you know then you kind of take them out and there's usually like a bunch of success for a while and eventually there's some some challenges some failures um followed by you know questioning like oh i don't want to be spider-man anymore things are you know the media is being mean to me as jameson or whatever and um so yeah, I mean a lot of the tropes that we see in in this exist in in uh superhero fiction and I mean superhero fiction is just like rife with tropes. Like I like uh, my least favorite trope is like no, my baby, you know, it's like where yeah, it's right, like where, there's where a... they show you a very they show you a cute white child as a way to give you the emotional weight of the terrible thing the bad guy's about to do. Right. Or I mean, more like I was I was being more specific. That's that's like a broader tropey mm. thing, um, like more specifically for me is like there's a burning building and there's like a woman outside who's like, no, my baby. And then the superhero oh, God, has to yeah. go in and save the baby. It's like, how many times have we seen that? It's We've ridiculous. We've seen that scene quite often. <laughs> exactly. It's like, take your baby with you. Jeez. <laughs> like, at least like if you're going to scream about it, be like, oh, no, my cat. You know, that's like a little bit better, like spin on it. Uh, that's yeah. in the Justice League. Uh, but you know, <laughs> for sure, for sure, where's Fluffy? But but yeah, no, I, I, and I think it's part of why this is such a relevant conversation. Is frankly, I find that a lot of how I view superhero media in terms of whether I like it or not, it is based on on one of two things: either a does it subvert the tropes that we know, and and especially does it avoid the more problematic ones? Right. And and I'll certainly be very critical when I um see a movie that I think. Uh, does fall into the more problematic ones. And I'll, I'll just name, you know, to me the best example is Ultron in that a very common trope that I think is not just common but is really kind of problematic is to show that a woman is broken by showing that she can't get pregnant. Um, and that just feeds into all kinds of like awful ideas of like what the nature of being a woman is and, and stuff like that. And, and so I don't love that about Ultron. But but my larger point is like when I when I view media, especially superhero media, I'm thinking about, you know, does it fall into the tropes and and or does it subvert them but if it does does it at least make the tropes everything else around the tropes so good that i don't really care you know right. like guardians of the galaxy is 100% trope like there is nothing about that movie that could not be predicted on some level you know like the i feel like the dance off at the end is is um <laughs> is like an original idea yeah, I mean, I feel like the 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 whole I mean, thing it's is a good distraction, about like but, you yeah, know. goofy distractions and yeah, I mean that like little but detail. By like and that. large, I agree. <laughs> yeah, I mean, did you ever for any moment have a thought that the bad guy was going to win that movie? Uh, no. Did you ever have any thought that these various like you know criminals would would not in some way redeem themselves by finding ways to do good things and yet still have laughable interactions with the cops chasing them? You know, like right, right, um, totally. You know. But the thing is that the movie was so funny and, the, and it made right. the characters so interesting that even though you knew what – like, you know, yes, this person is broken in this way and so will do this thing. 
but the way that they're broken is so fascinating, you know, mm-hmm. like, you know, the, the person who is rejected by society, been used for only one purpose and thus has kind of turned grouchy and mean and angry at the whole world. That's very much a trope, mm-hmm. but you make that person a talking raccoon. Well, right. okay, this is kind of a fun version of that trope. Right, you know? right, right. Um, so yeah, so I, I think it's a worth it's a thing to talk about when we look at um, look at this kind of media about you know how are they using the tropes because you know superhero by itself is a trope as you said you know you're not going right, to get away right. from it but but it really I think separates different movies and shows based on like how are they using it are they being thoughtful of the the problematic aspects and and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, that's that's one of the things I like so much about like Ant Man. Mm-hmm. And then Ant-Man and the Wasp. Um, I mean, the the first Ant-Man, like, there's, you know, like, Michael Douglas's character gets shot, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and Hank Pym. And it's like, oh, here we go. You know, the sort of mentor, older, wise scientist guy is going to get killed. And it's like, don't worry, I'm not going to die. Yeah, and I was then, like, so happy about he that. He doesn't die. I was like, hey! Yeah. <laughs> it's like, you know, they went... And it's like, I think you can do this a lot with tropes and cliches and, you know, stereotypes or whatever. You can kind of, like, head towards it. And then if you, like, veer away at the right time, you can make that work for you. Yeah. Um, sometimes then that people do that so much that that becomes its own thing. Um, Which is kind and, of like what we were saying from the beginning about how the, oh, wait, we're not going to give you a happy ending. At first was like, oh, cool, that's refreshing. Right. And then, oh, you also did that. Oh, oh, oh you can we ever get a happy ending again? You right. <laughs> like one time, like yeah. just mix it up. Like, honestly, the unhappy endings will feel more unhappy if there's like some happy ones. Yeah. Like if we don't know, you know, it's like, if you're, you know, like if you're watching a show like game of Thrones, it's like, we get it. They're going to die. Everything's going to be horrible. Like, yeah, not my favorite show. And um, one thing I think is interesting now is that there are definitely tropes associated with different production companies, you know, like yeah, yeah. if it's on HBO, yeah, I'm expecting a lot more nudity than the story necessarily needs. Uh, right. Or it's a right. bad thing, but it's just, and I'm expecting the violence to be of a very particular level of like gory bloodiness. Yeah. Um, and it's funny too, because in many ways I feel like this show would not have felt as breaking of tropes if it had been on ABC. Um, sure. But there's yeah. a lot of things that happen on, Netflix especially. I mean and like, you know, I'll say early in her childhood, after we've already established that she's traumatized, and we get the sense that maybe more trauma is coming her way, she's introduced to two older male figures, both of whom have very sort of grouchy, like we're not sure what kind of relationship they're gonna have with her. Yeah. I one hundred percent expected at least one of them to be sexually inappropriate or abusive or suggestive or like something like that because that is so common on netflix right now um yeah me too and it was so it was so good when it didn't happen you know Mm -hmm. it was just like oh no he's just a grumpy old man or he's gonna be terrible to them but some other way right instead eventually she has you know potentially questionable interactions with men closer to her age right that you know but again there it's like i feel like some of that's a little tropey, but some of it's a little not. Like with um, Towns, you yeah. know, um, I, I felt like that was that was one um, sort of an unexpected way of dealing with it, um, where he invites her to her, her um, to his hotel room and he's taking pictures of her, and it seems very much like he's hitting on her, which I think he is to an extent. Mm-hmm. But 
I think there's also a lot going on in terms of like both of the characters' motivations being kind of unclear, not just to the audience, but to themselves. I think right. neither of them really clearly know what they want. And then this this other guy comes in who who Towns is sharing the hotel room with, and I don't think it's clear what their relationship is, but there's some, um, I felt there was kind of some t- subtext there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, then at the end, like, she sees him again, like, you know, when, when she's in Moscow, and, like, he's clearly, like, wasn't sure. He was like, yeah, I was confused then. And and so, I, I you know, I feel like they didn't get too, too explicit, like, exactly what happened. Yeah. Um, but it felt like he was, you know, probably gay or questioning at the time. And that, you know, it, it felt like not tropish, like it felt real to me, you know, just that it was like, you know, these are people who were, who were kind of trying to figure out like what they wanted and, um, you know, they weren't quite sure. And then, you know, they kind of get interrupted and then the moment's gone and then, you know, nothing really happens. Mm -hmm. Um, and I will say, I, I do wish I, I, I misread that scene the first time I saw it because what I, um, I wish that the movie had been a little bit clearer about exactly how old she is at different points. Um, yes. That they pick... I, I feel like it might have been deliberate, by the way. I, I think that's very possible. And I think in, in some ways part of the story – a real part of the story is that she is – you know, basically like her her maturities are being ra- radically different in that, you know, she's in a – especially when she's a teenager, she's at a point in her life when she is intelligent enough and skilled enough – to beat adults at a game of, of mental prowess with, with, without barely baking a sweat. Yeah. And she's able to kind of exist in this world, but she's also in many ways, very underdeveloped and very immature in some ways. And, you know, again, like when, because, because her age is at that point, very unclear, I wasn't sure if we're meeting like an 18, we're seeing like an 18 year old and a 20 year old, or if we're seeing a 15 year old and a 20 year old. And, right. Or even like a 23 year old. Like, we're not sure how old he is, I don't think. You know, and I think like the age doesn't matter, you know, in, in terms of where she is in the maturity stage. But but I think also you might be right that they intentionally don't really tell. They do establish later, I think, that they were much closer in age than it might have thought. And that like whatever happened wasn't really kind of that level of inappropriate. But I think part of what it's a, again, the trope would be you make him clearly the older experienced guy who's going to take advantage of the young girl because she's whatever her actual age is. She's very immature. She's had very little social development and he can, you know, wahaha, like take advantage of her in some terrible way. That, that would be the trope. Yeah. It, instead, I feel like you get this whole world of people who are, you know, cause all the people she socializes with are not really even just chess players, but we're all kind of child prodigies in their own way. So you have all of these people who are in late teenage years, or sometimes maybe a few years over 20, um, all in like different stages of weird maturity, of being very mature in some ways and very immature in some ways. And there's a sexual encounter that, that is shown where she's with a, a stoned college guy that I think is very much supposed to be a like, this is this is not the greatest. This is pretty sketchy. This is someone taking kind of advantage of her. Um, although in a great scene that kind of establishes her feelings and intimacy, she kind of pats him on the back right after it's done and it kind of <laughs> like you amazing. know good try buddy it's <laughs> <laughs> like uh keep that you know there you go sport okay. yeah I, okay that's rough buddy um <laughs> i um, forgot that 
Yeah, it was such a great moment. And I, I read I, there's and, an interview with the actress about the way the different sex scenes are shown. Yeah. Which, by the way, with no the, nudity whatsoever. Right. Uh, which, again, yeah. like Netflix? Okay, cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, not so much like sex scenes. I mean, I guess they are sex scenes. But, like, some, some of them it's, like, after or some of that. The, I mean, the one where she's like, oh, so that's what that's supposed to feel like. Yeah, which is kind of a nice moment of her wrecking. Because, again, I, I feel like it's, again, showing how detached she is from a lot of these things. You know, that she's right. sort of like, oh, I, I think I'm supposed to feel horny now. Okay, well, right. let, let's see what this is like. No, but also just I think that, like, her previous, you know, uh, yeah, yeah, encounters no. were not really up to. Yeah. But and that's what I mean is I feel like that's part of it because she wasn't into it to begin with. Even, oh, you know? maybe. But yeah. also, yeah, I, I think also, like stoned 1960s college guy is maybe not the most invested in being the you know most artic most uh uh per uh attentive lover i think right a good yeah statement. yeah yeah uh, but but yeah so we, we were off on a long tangent that i have no idea where we started from <laughs> um oh but yeah in terms of talking about all this i feel like it's another way in which it subverts some tropes in order to kind of make this larger point about how all the people in this world are in this kind of really crazy state of being very adult with all the hormones of being teenagers, with all the lack of socialization that they've all had. Um, and it, it, it winds up making it a very poignant story because of the way it plays with those tropes. Yeah. I mean, I, I'd say I, I don't know if all of them are kind of on the same level in terms of like lack of socialization. Like, mm -hmm. like I'd say like Beltic seems like very awkward, you know, yeah. um, whereas um Oh, geez. Benny. Uh, Benny seems like he's like a pirate, you know, he's like a chess pirate, basically. Like, to me, Benny is the kind of like the I best example of the big fish in a tiny pond, you know? Yeah, yeah. He is sure. the he is the king of the of this chess world. He is the, the state champion who she defeats. Or no, no, the, he, US the U.S. champion. champion. Right? Yeah. He's the U.S. champion at like 18 or, or so. Um, and you kind of get the sense of like you take you ask him to like, you know, go hang out in a fraternity. He's going to be a social nightmare. Um, but in this world, he's, you know, because he's just very good at talking about chess and playing chess and people go up to him, like he can play that game very well. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 again, would push back on that a little bit just in terms of, I think that's, I think that's a little bit of an assumption that people make, um, about, I mean, you know, chess players specifically, but like more broadly, um, people who do excel at, at, um, sort of niche and like intellectual pursuits. Um, mm -hmm. I, I very much didn't get that sense from it. I mean, I got the sense that he wouldn't really have any interest in going to a party at a frat house. Um, you know, but um, he, you know, he seems like actually a very social creature to me. And I know what you mean about kind of the big fish in the small pond, mm -hmm. although it's not that small of a pond. Um, I, I think. I, I guess what I mean there is that, it, it feels like his main way of socialization is about chess and then he right. has real trouble kind of breaking out of that. And to me, the moment I think that really shows it is, you know, when he is like at first he seems very like standoffish with Beth and that he's not going to want to go to she flirts with him and he's like, no, we're not going there. Yeah. Um, and then later, like they are intimate. They do go to bed to they do go to bed together and you literally see them like out of breath. You know, she says like. That's what it's supposed to feel like is clearly having like all this wonderful, like, you know, happy post-coital serotonin-y like emotional feelings. And he just immediately like while catching his breath and she's cuddling, talks to him about starts talking to her about chess again. Right, right. And then seems to have like no understanding of why she's looking for a level of intimacy that he he just seems utterly clueless about, which mm. is interesting because 
the exact same thing had happened with her and a guy who she slept with beforehand. Right. Um, but, but the so opposite. I, yeah. Well, well yeah, yeah, where she was on the other side of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but so I guess that's what I mean when I when, – that scene to me is where I was like, he doesn't really know when to stop talking chess and, like, have other kinds of human interactions. Right. Sure. Sure. I mean, I feel like maybe that's partially just because of her being her. Mm-hmm. That that's, like, how they've – like, that's, like, what they've talked about. And I think that's what he finds – most interesting about her. And I, I thought earlier on him kind of shutting her down when she was flirting um, with him was, it felt more almost like a principled kind of stand as opposed to like necessarily a lack of interest, but just kind of like, no, we're here for the chess. Mm. Um, but, you know, I, I can see definitely, um, I, I, I think yours is a very valid interpretation and, um, and possibly what was, you know, more intended. Yeah. Yeah, I, I I think you can see it either way though, and and again, it's because it's, it's not fitting into a trope, which is where right. it's nice. And um, and I I think both of them just have that same sort of level of obsession with the chess. I, I I guess I almost saw it the opposite way, in that like for him that wasn't that it felt like that wasn't necessarily like an outlier mm. of an encounter, whereas for her that was like the first time that it seemed like she was like really into it, right? You know, or like had a satisfying encounter. I I think for me, I mean. He's very much when I said like the, the the big fish, like he is very much the center of every social group that we see him in. And right. I think I kind of had the feeling that he's um he's more used to groupies than equals, especially mm. when it comes to lovers. And yeah. that maybe part like he he really is interested in her. I mean, she beats him is where right. this all starts. And then yeah. he is like, Okay, well you beat me, now I have to train you. Right. And Part of it felt like to me like a like I need to find a way to stay relevant while I'm kind of adjusting to this new understanding of myself. Mm-hmm. Um, but also that like, oh, you beat me. You're the first person I've met who can do that. And, and I guess to me that was almost the, like I, I think it's partially a principle thing, but it's also kind of it feels like he needs to draw a wall of like you're already better than me in chess. I need to not like make myself emotionally vulnerable to you as well. Sure, um, yeah. You know, because he's more comfortable sleeping with people who – where, where there is a power imbalance and they, they look to him and then he's like, eh, okay, yeah, you know, next city there'll be another girl. Right, right. Yeah, I, th- I think that's that seems like a fair assessment to me. So I think there's one major trope that I wanted especially us to talk about because it, it's it's one you and I really talk about a lot and it is very common, especially in the, the superhero and, and uh, related stories we talk about, which is the redemption arc. Um, and I bring it up because um, you and I were documenting it for this show in in recent media, I feel like the redemption arc story has become a very popular thing, and there's a lot of debate about, like, is it done well or is it not? You know, mm-hmm. and that there are times where people are very critical because the redemption doesn't feel earned. You know, like, one of the tropes is they do terrible things, they do terrible things, they do one good thing, and then it's all okay. Um, you know, looking at you, Kylo Ren. Um, <laughs> but, but, but then I think, you know, two of the stories you and I have talked about really loving um, are... Uh, the story of of um, Zuko. I keep wanting mm-hmm. to call him Danny Zuko. Uh, I, I know <laughs> Zuko from Avatar: The Last Airbender and Katra from Shira. Yeah, where the where the redemption story feels very earned. Mm-hmm. Um, and on some level, I think I went into this like watching her hurt people because she's dealing with her own trauma. Like, I mean, she hurts people in ways that I think I can be very sympathetic to the people she hurt. 
Yeah. But also really sympathetic to her. I mean, she's coming from right. a real place of trauma and like, it doesn't excuse it, but it explains it. And I don't think she's a malicious person in any way. No. Um, but I do, I was like, oh, okay. So we're going to, we're going to set up for some kind of like a redemption story. Um, and when those other people came back into her life without like, she, she cleans herself up, but she makes no attempt at really sort of like wrecking, you know, she kind of jokes about how she was a terrible person. Yeah. She doesn't really try to like, fix anything or make anything better she certainly doesn't reach out to them to let them know she's cleaned up they just all of a sudden are like oh hi we're here to help support you it felt weird to me because it didn't feel like it was fitting the redemption arc that i wanted and then in talking with it you pointed out that's not really a redemption arc Um, say more about that like how how did you see that story in terms of the redemption trope that we so often talk about Right. So I think I I said that I didn't really think of it as much as a redemption arc as some other word that I don't remember what it was. Um, uh, I should I wish. Do you remember what word I used? Because it was it was a great word. Uh, I I remember that I came up with a term that that that, um, well, because what I I said is that in talk in talking with you, you helped me see that it it's not a story about her redemption. It's a story about her conquering her demons. Yes, yes, that's what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, like to to, I feel like the story is like more of her. It's like it's a story of self actualization and yeah. a story of like her becoming kind of who she is capable of being and getting over her demons, you know, with some help from her friend. Um, but it's like also. You know, I I mean, in terms of, like, redemption, the reason I don't really think of it as a redemption arc is, like, you know, she does some bad things in relationships and says some mean things, right? Yeah. But, like, she's not hunting the Avatar, you know, she's not, (laughs) like, trying to, like, destroy all the princesses and, like, kill her childhood best friend or whatever. Like, you know, she has a couple bad breakups, mostly, and then, you know, and then she get has, you know, serious... um, you know, alcoholism problem. And, and, um, I I forget whether she's on the tranquilizers as much then, but like she's clearly, yeah. yeah, So she's clearly got, you know, addiction problems that she has to overcome. And it's like in the process of that addiction, she does damage to other people or does harm to them, but it feels like the level of harm that she does is like modest. Right. I think, I think that's very true. So I would say, you know, it doesn't quite like rise. I feel like she doesn't need to be redeemed. Mm-hmm. She just kind of needs to like get better and then mm-hmm. be herself and be okay. And I think um, I found the, you know, the ending in that regard with, with all the, all the friends and, you know, and, you know, ex sort of exes um, to be like, it kind of came a little bit out of left field. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, I, I don't find it implausible, just more kind of like improbable. And I, I think maybe there, there could have been a, a, a little more kind of in terms of like, how did that situation actually arise? And, you know, she didn't, it, it, it feels to me less like she, you know, earns redemption and more like they like gave her forgiveness yeah. Like, basically. And because, I mean, if you look at them, two of them, you know, were friends from when she basically first started competing at chess, right? Mm-hmm. Who were kind of like, oh, you're going to you're gonna be in the open division? And they're like, oh, wow, she's really good. And then <laughs> it, immediately, you know, they kind of were sort of like brotherly towards her, right? Yeah, very much so. And then there was, you know, this guy who, who clearly had, you know, deep feelings for her, um, Beltic, 
who really wanted to help her. He reached out to her when she was struggling and tried to help her, but she pushed him away. Um, But it's like, that doesn't mean he doesn't still want to help her. Right. And when, when she's better and when she's kind of able for him to help her, then, then he's, he's there again. You know, it's kind of like, to me, it feels almost like she kind he kind of gave her some space because she pushed him away. But then when there was kind of an opening to be there again as her friend, um, he wanted to do that. And then, you know, and then there's Benny who like, really, I think just loves the chess, you know? And I think he, he really wanted her to beat Borgov. Right. And like, and so I think he was like there for the chess as much as anything. And so each of those characters motivations make sense to me. Like Mm -hmm. the logistics of who got in touch with whom (laughs) to all be in New York, to be on this phone call and analyze the game and whatever. That's a little maybe fanciful. Um, but her, her it, two broken-hearted ex-boyfriends, whose only real connection is that they both got their hearts broken by her reconnecting to help her, is maybe a as like nineteen, eighteen-year-old boys is maybe something I have a little trouble with. But you know, yeah, it's, it's right. It's, and it's chess. It, it's certainly yeah. possible, and, and in a, in a kind of feel-good story like this. Yeah, and and I think there may be more in their in their twenties. I'm. It's very yeah. unclear. Um, but you know, I I I, I buy it. I just feel like, you know, if you did an eighth episode, like it would show kind of how that came together and then, you know, whatever. But um, I think the actual ending was, um, which was, it's like, it feels kind of like a trope that's not a trope, you know? Um, like if, do, do you want to say more on this? Or yeah, I mean, I, I actually think it is quite, a, because just to give you a, uh, to catch folks up again who haven't, who don't remember what we're talking about there, um, one of the things that's established early on is that part of why the Russians are so very, very good at chess is that they work as a team and that they're always supporting each other and helping each other and going over moves with each other. And then American players are much more individualistic and don't do that as often. And it's certainly um, when they do, she has very much always been this like set apart. I don't need that. I don't need you. You know, she she does it all in her mind. You know, she doesn't yeah. need to play it with other people. And, and, and so part of what happens is at the very end, they all do kind of rally around her and, you know, over the phone, they tell her all these ways that they, you know, they basically do what the Russian team is doing with her over the phone in an incredibly expensive call from New York City to Moscow in the 1960s. Because the game is adjourned and, and she has to consider all the possibilities of what his latest move could have been and basically all the lines of the game going forward. Right. And it's very hard for one person to do that. So in real life, people have a second who will, you know, go over it with them and they might have a team of people. Yeah. This is, is a th- way that it really works, but it's not the way she worked. It's not the way, apparently, at least in the story, Americans worked then, but that the Soviets very much did this right. extremely effectively. And, and I do think that that is, again, also very much a trope, but one that feels earned in this, you know, of the the individual who learns that she needs to, ha- to get the help of others to succeed. Yes. Um, oh, is that absolutely. kind of what you were talking about, about the trope that, that is sort of there? No, I was going to say, I mean, that's spot on. Uh, that's not what I was going to say. I was going to say more like the applause and then the game in the park. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think that I think that's very much there. And it's, but it's again, it's the happy trope, you know. Right. The, the, the modern version of it would often be the player is super pissed at, you know, losing to a girl. And he says something that kind of hurts her and mars her victory. But instead, like everyone she beats is incredibly gracious. And yeah. She beats this older chess grandmaster who she'd like literally studied him as a girl. And, and she says that to him. And then he says, you know, 
I just lost to the best player who's ever beaten me, you know, and it's just, she, right. she's so emotionally touched by it. And yeah, yeah, there were just all of these and like he, sweet yeah. moments that were just yeah. really nice, you know? And he literally stands up and applauds along with like the gallery. Yeah. Um, which seems like, like a little bit of like one of those sports movies, those kind of tropes where it's like, yeah, okay. But like that actually happened, I think in the 1972 world championship, Boris Spassky actually stood yeah. up and applauded uh, Bobby Fisher's uh, victory in game six. Um, after he'd been defeated, you know, and it's yeah. like this sort of level of sportsmanship that that's a trope, but it's like, if it, it, it very much feels earned to me in, um, in this story, you know, when it does, I think it can be very powerful when it's not, it's, it, I think it, it tends to be more of a kind of eye rolly thing. Well, and here's, I think where, where the, 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 whole concept of tropes, at least as I see it really comes in because the thing is, I didn't expect it. I thought it right. was possible. But I didn't, like, know going in. The way that, like, when the mother played piano, I knew she was about to die. And, <laughs> right. and I think this is the, to me, this is the biggest problem with tropes is that, like I said, sometimes A leads to B. But when in your movies, it, it, in, and in some ways, the fact that A can lead to B means that, like, why should any individual writer not be able to say that A in their particular story leads to B? Like, right. In some ways, it's kind of shitty to be like, well, but everyone else did it, so you have to do something different. Mm -hmm. But I, I, in terms of the way audiences work, I think that's the thing. Is like, if I've just seen nine versions of something, like seeing a tenth version, even if it is like based on a true story. I, I mean, it's funny. While we were talking about this, um, uh, while we were watching the show, you sent me information about this um, American chess prodigy right now um, who's like 10 years old and he's won some major tournaments. And it's funny because if you – I'll post the link in, in the show notes. If you read his biography, like you'd immediately be like, <laughs> why has someone not made this movie already? And it's yeah. – if, if it was a fictional movie, it would be the most eye-rolly trope thing in the world. Like he's right. a – he's the child of um, Nigerians who were refugees from, from conflict there. He learned how to play chess like in the refugee camp like – his father is, it just, I mean, it's an amazing story and very true and like incredibly inspirational, but it just feels like every trope has gotten pulled out. Right. And to remind you, these things are based in reality. You know, they come right. from reality. But I think, I think it's a valid thing for us to say as part of criticism, like, you know, okay, but when you're telling us a fictional story, like you should be aware of like what the last nine stories that used the same situation did, you know? And if you're doing the same thing, even if your version is like totally interesting, it's probably going to suffer somewhat. Yeah. I, so I think it can go both ways though, mm -hmm. in that I think there are certain tropes that it's like, it, in, instead of, Oh, you have to avoid them. I think there's often a period of time where it's almost like you have to follow them um, because this is what the ex audience expects. And this is what the audience wants. Yeah. I mean, there's a, and, there's something comforting to some extent about that, you know? And like, I mean, even sometimes when it's, um, you know, a negative occurrence, when it's, you know, mm -hmm. um, sort of like misery porn, if you will. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think there's definitely a, you know, a sort of when, you know, when people talk about uh, movies or, or certain types of stories being formulaic, you know, they're often using that derisively. Right. But they're, you know, the word formulaic, but it's. There, there's also an extent to which it's like if you follow certain formulas, 
while also giving something kind of new and original, like people will eat it, right? Like baking is formulaic. Yeah. Like people come up with new things. There's tons of different things you can bake, but like if you take a particular recipe and and follow it and it was good one time, like it'll probably be good another time. Yeah. Um, and so I think it's just a little bit of a danger and it's like something you can trade on, but mm -hmm. if you do it too much, then, you know, it's, it's going to be boring. And I think you're right that there is something to be said there about, about the expectations. You know, when I go to a rom-com, like there are some times where I want to go see a movie about, you know, real life romantic situations in which, you know, things might work out. They might not. I don't know because romantic relationships are complicated and I want to see how it plays out. Right. But when I go see a rom-com, if if they break up at the end of the rom-com, I'm going to be really pissed. <laughs> like, that's not what I paid $12 and bought some popcorn for, you know? Like, right. That's what I wanted to see. Um, but sometimes you get that, you know? Yeah. And, well, and, and some, I feel like a lot of times, like, you... you but then you, you might not call it a rom-com. You might call it something a little different. I don't know. And I think a lot of times it's marketed like that, you know? Like, I think, you know... Right. Part of, we've talked a lot about the the Netflix MCU. I think one of the things that that really made the Netflix MCU fairly different was that, you know, the MCU movies, we were all pretty sure that the good guy was going to win in the end. Right. That it might not be a perfect victory, and that something terrible might happen as well. But we we're pretty sure that the good guy was going to win. Um, I don't think we had that assurance in a lot of the Netflix shows, and in some of them. The good guy won, but sort of, and in some way, like, you know, or, yeah. or like in Jessica Jones, where she had to, like, murder a person in order to win, and we think that's the right thing, but it's morally complicated. Like, I, I feel like Netflix was a great place to say, let's take the superhero tropes and play with them, and maybe not mm -hmm. give you what you're expecting. Right. For sure. And, and then you kind of get a, you can get a different set of tropes, like, there's an old wise black guy, and he gets murdered in episode 11, and then in another series they're like oh we'll kill them off earlier but mm -hmm. um that would be an example of a trope i was not fond of yeah um but but they do they Good. do not follow like the um the the movie tropes yeah. quite the same way and and we've made a couple references to it but i want to just kind of like lampshade it and talk about it a little more i i do think that one of the one of the times for me that tropes become most problematic is when they are playing on racial or gender or other kind of stereotypes like that, you know? And it's, totally. it, it's you know, like you said, it's the, the black character who exists to die um, or to be like that source of wisdom for someone else, you know? Or the, um, you know, um, I was having a conversation about this recently about how, like, yes, you know, like Asian American scientists definitely exist and that's a, a real thing and, and, you know, showing them, you know, if you only have white people as a scientists in a movie, that's not good. But when right. there was a while, I was like, oh, yeah, let's get more Asian Americans into movies. Well, Asian Americans are smart and they're good with science. And so now every Asian American who appears or every Asian character who appears is the scientist or the computer nerd or the geeky guy and is almost never the romantic lead. Like, that's just as bad, you know? Yeah, yeah. And, um, I, well... I, I don't know if it's just as bad, but it's definitely also bad. Okay, yeah. I mean, like, that, that's, that, that's that, a conversation that people can have. But It might be like, yeah, like you said, it's like the first couple times it was a good thing, but now the fact, it's become a new right. kind of bad. Yeah. Um, you know, and the same, like, part of why I love The Wire so much, uh, to switch gears very much, but is that, um, 
yes, it shows a number of black characters in the kind of stereotypical tropish roles of being, you know, drug dealers and, and murderers and people from like, you know, bad neighborhoods and the like. But A, even within that, it shows an incredible... Di- they're not just like, you know, gangster number one and gangster number two. They're yeah. all people who are, are incredibly well actualized and have motivations and have backstories and have feelings and have quirks and, and all this. And then there's also a whole number of black characters and all other, you know, as politicians or as cops. And, and frankly, like the, probably the one who's the most villainous is the politician, you know, much more so than, than oh, yeah. killers. Um, yeah, yeah. In some ways, and it's so like to in, me, that's in a, some ways. I mean, yeah, I mean, he's not a flat out killer. The, but he's, the, the serial killer is kind of also pretty. Bad. I mean, she, you know, of course. So, but yeah, <laughs> I had to get that one in once. Yeah, um, but all, also there are people in the drug trade who are not black. So it's like it's a show that's got so many characters, and it's able to, you know, put people in roles where you might see it as a stereotype. But then also people who look like them in roles that you wouldn't see as a stereotype and then other people in the other roles that you might not see as a stereotype. So it's like if you to me, it's kind of about volume and ratio Mm -hmm. and like, you know, if you have one Asian character in your story and they're the doctor, like that's not great, you know. But like if you have six Asian characters in your story and one of them's a doctor, it's like, yeah, okay, that makes sense. That's fine. Which you know. is why I think part of the power of things like Black Panther, where, like, you have an entire world where, like, right. it's not the two black characters in a white world, you know, is, right. is again, such a good way of breaking yeah. those tropes. Yeah, it's the two white characters, yeah. right. basically. <laughs> um, the, the, the Tolkien white guys. Um, <laughs> oh! Oh, that's a good one. I, I'm... <laughs> Come on, you've heard... I, I'm at... I haven't heard that one. Oh, okay. I would not have given you that reaction <laughs> if I didn't very briefly think that you had just come up with it on, by yourself on the spot. <laughs> no, no, it, it, it's been a meme that was around for quite a while, but I'm glad. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. But, but yeah, right, good um, one, Watson. And, and to pull it back to uh, Queen's Gambit, I think this is one area where Queen's Gambit is actually quite good. Um, you know, in that, again, it... it the the young woman who who is playing um you know the character is is very attractive and and certainly enjoys being attractive and at one point like they 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 lampshade that like you know the press asks her like can you be so glamorous while being being a trans person which again is highlighting kind of the sexism she's going through and she discovers her sexuality and in some ways understands the the power of her sexuality but it doesn't she doesn't become a vamp you know she doesn't fall into the stereotype of the like you know uh, like there's there's one in very particular scene where she's playing against a much younger Russian player. I think at this point she's like 17, 18, and he's 13 or so, 14. And he's clearly a very good poker, a very good chess player. He at one point, like she she can't defeat him earlier easily. They have to adjourn. It's a hard, hard match. But she also realizes that he has very much a puppy dog, like, oh, my God, girl, pretty. I'm 13 kind of crush on her. Right. At which point she, like, the next day starts being, like, a little bit more flirtatious, but also a little bit more like, ugh, I don't even have time for you. She gets up and walks away from the table all the time. She very clearly, like, uses the fact that he's attracted to her to get in his head and beat him. And it's a complete, like, other people have played mind games with her up to this point. It's a completely legitimate move. But it's nice to see, like, yeah, she uses her attractiveness in that one setting but they don't just make her into a vamp character. You know, like she doesn't just become therefore like the pretty chess player who wins because she like mesmerizes the girl with her prettiness, uh, which is a story we've seen a hundred times before. Right, right, exactly. She uses it 
to her advantage in that one exact see, you know, scene. But like, aside from that, it doesn't seem like it's particularly a factor. Yeah, exactly. exactly. And I think the fact that someone else had played mind games with her also makes it more like she's not doing anything wrong. You know, she's, she's playing the game. Right. Like she's, playing. yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's gamesmanship that I, I think certainly, I don't think it's unreasonable to frown on it, yeah. you know, um, where it's like, I, I, my personal feeling is kind of like, just play the game, you know, but at the same time, it's like, it's certainly not against the rules. It's not well, against the rules and she's not the, like, yeah, I think it, she's definitely not the only person doing it. It's exactly. not the best sportsmanship, but yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, yeah. Like, and I think you were, you were referring to when Benny is like, Hey, let's play some blitz chess, you know, for $5 a game. And he just crushes her at it. Um, the night before they're supposed to have a match. Right. right. And then he gets her to that... play a kind of chess that she hasn't played much in order exactly. to just kind of make her question herself in general. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He takes her out of her element. And then when they do actually play, um, you know, it doesn't go as well as maybe it would have. Um, so one trope that has been very well established is you and I saying we're not going to go very long and then <laughs> blitzing through much longer amounts of time. <laughs> so I want to try and break that trope, even though we're well over the time I thought we were going to go. But but let me just kind of close with two questions. And so the first one would be, is there anything else about this specific movie you wanted to – it's not a movie. It's a show. But um, yeah. I think you're right. But because it, it's a full, complete series, that's why it feels like a movie. It feels um, like a movie. It feels like a long movie. Like when they made like, you know, Daredevil, like, oh, it's like a 13-hour movie. It's like, well, right. this feels like a seven-hour movie, except it's a closed circuit, right? It's done. So Right. Did, yeah, yeah, because like you said, it's not a story of – it is a story of her self-actualization – and she gets there by the end, you know. Um, but so, yeah, is there anything else more about it that you wanted to talk about, or kind of other other uh, moments you wanted to highlight? Yeah, um, I, basically just that one thing that was very important to me and helped me enjoy the series as much as I did was just that the chess was really legit. Yeah. Um, I think when making a series about someone who's great at a thing, I think it's incumbent upon the author to know a certain amount about the thing and or to have consultants. I mean, one reason The Wire was such an amazing show is because, you know, the the creator, right? Um, David Simon, right, David? Simon, I think so, yeah. Um, was, a, you know, was a journalist and was a, you know, it worked in that area, right? Worked with cops and, um, you know, with the sort of drug scene in Baltimore. And so th- it was very real that way. And, and then when and they consulted reached... with a number of um, both cops and criminals from that world, like where we're consultants right. on the scripts. Yeah, exactly. And then when they started expanding the universe to include like politics, to include, uh, you know, the schools, to include the docs, I think they actually added writers who had experience in those fields. They did. Yeah. So, th- so that it would feel more real so that they could actually give, um, uh, a reality to it and so actually every chess position every game there's actually videos r- analyzing um the game that's played at the end which is based on a real game but then they expanded upon it and they consulted uh they had um gary kasparov uh one of the greatest chess players of all time former world champion and uh bruce pandolfini who was um actually the ben kingsley character in searching for bobby fisher mm. and so just the fact that the chess was so legit it was real like they're talking about certain defenses or certain attacks and and they make sense you know um for that that avoids it like gives kind of a a sort of a legitimacy to the thing that the show is based around and then it it like avoids taking i mean that's just important to me in the first place for anything but it also avoids 
um, people who have knowledge of the subject from like kind of getting removed from it. Right. Yeah. And I'll, I'll give another example of that because I agree with why it's so important and then say something else about it. Um, for me, the one that, that I always think of when I think of that is the movie Coco, uh, the, the Pixar movie, mm, which you yes. still have not seen, right? No, I've seen it. Okay. So, yeah, you'll probably... Uh, you, I you, saw it in English and Spanish. You maybe even think this even more than I do. Like, you know, it is a movie about family. It's a movie about spirituality. It's a movie about redemption. It's a movie about so many beautiful things. And it's not really about guitar playing as much as, like, guitar playing is, like, a major sort of plot hook. Yeah. But it is the only movie I've ever seen, either live action or animated, where what the actual fingers on the frets of the guitar are doing matches the notes that are being played. Right, um, right. And, and to me, it's that same thing. Like, that, for me, as a guitar player, means so much. Um, and what I'll say about what I think makes this, this show so good is you're right, you know far more about chess than I do. You can look at a chessboard and analyze it in a way I really can't. And so, for me, it doesn't matter that the chess moves are, are accurate or not, because I couldn't follow them at the speed they were going. But, but if you saw a pawn on, like, the first rank or something, you'd be like, that's not a thing. Right, you know? sure. But but I mean, but, but what I was going to say is the opposite, but, is that uh, a lot of times when something does what you're doing of, it goes to the technical level that makes the experts happy, it yeah. leaves the amateurs behind. And uh, here okay. they managed to not do that. Someone like me, who has much less chess analysis skill than you do, was still able to really feel invested and involved and like, oh, okay, they're signaling with the music and with the, with the lighting and with all sorts of other production things. They're telling me what's happening in the chess match right now without ever right. having to say it. Um, right. And to me, that just as a production value, that's a really hard thing to do that the show was brilliant at. Like yeah. being able to make both of us very happy with the chess scenes, I think is a, is a real achievement. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. Um, and I mean, there's also, um, you know, Anya Taylor joy, the actress who plays, I don't know if I'm pronouncing her name, right. But mm -hmm. um, who, who plays Beth. Um, and it's also in the new mutants. If uh, we need to like work in a little more superhero. Oh, stuff. there you go. There you go. But <laughs> um, it, like, you you look at her face and you're like, oh, she's losing this game. Yeah. You know, like the very rare occasions where the character's losing a game, like you can tell. And not because like of this like super like, oh, uh, you know, kind of like <laughs> overdone, but just like you can see it, you know, in her face. Um, and and they, you know, they also communicate it with like musical cues yeah. and um, the way, you know, the angles they choose and stuff like that. I mean, right. I'll be amazed if that actress isn't nominated for an Emmy. Like she was. Oh, for yeah, for yeah, um, for the person who played Beth, because I thought she her her fate playing the kind of character she does, who has been through a trauma that causes her not to like lash out, but to turn inward. I mean, that's a hard yeah. thing to convey, and right. And I think there's so many moments of emotional subtlety of where like you see her emotions starting to break through, but then she reins it back very quickly. Mm -hmm. um like that's really hard to convey and i've seen a lot of people do it very badly so i was yeah yeah very impressed by her as an actress in that regard yeah yeah i'd say it's a, a very it's a, a brilliant understated performance yeah is kind of how i would and i think that's the last thing i would say about the show is that it's just it was for me also very very relatable in a lot of ways um uh you know both for someone who who had a mother who had some, some substance abuse problems herself and and some of the own stuff that i went through in my childhood like it was without ever having to name a psychological diagnosis. And I think we don't, you know, I think, I think you could read her as being somewhere on an autism spectrum. I think you could read her as dealing with PTSD. I think you could read her as having a number of different psychological conditions. 
Yeah. Without anyone being provable, I don't think we. I don't think it'd be right to say like she has this or she has that. Sure. Yeah. But she clearly has like reactions that I think a lot of people who have been through trauma or can understand it can be like yeah that that. There's no point in which anything her character does doesn't feel real. You know whether yeah. it's self-destructive or whether it's pulling herself out. Um, and you're right. I think that here also it helps that it's not the super tropey like in the story where everything always goes wrong and everything is always terrible and the person like self-destructs everything, mm-hmm. you know, there was a review I read that said, yeah, this didn't really feel like a self-destruction story because the, the stakes are never that high for her. And it's like, well, but, right. but that's a lot more real. You know, not every, I, I think I actually right. said to you, like she never hits rock bottom and you're like, yeah. not everyone does, you know, some right. people get kind of low and then that's okay. And I just, I really liked that, you know? Yeah. Yeah, me too. I mean, I, I, I really do feel like, you know, this was her story. Um, you know, she has two moms who both hit rock bottom and die, right? Um, one who very deliberately kills herself and the other who, I'd say, inadvertently kills herself. Um, I mean, the, but she's not her mo- either of her moms, you know? And I was, like, was going to say, like, that other mom, like, at one point says very clearly, like, yes, I know the drug, the drinking and the smoking is, is damaging my health, but they're what right. make life livable. Um, right. So exactly. It's kind of an inner, yeah. It's kind of a slow motion subconscious suicide. Right. And, and so, you know, but like as much as those, as, as much as they can have an influence on her, like that's not, it's not like you just always end up like your parents. Yeah. Right. And I mean, different people have different experiences and, Having, you know, showing something where someone hits rock bottom is completely valid. That's a real thing. That happens in real life. We have tons of stories like those. Um, I found it very refreshing to have a story where someone struggled with trauma, struggled with addiction, um, and then just, you know, didn't have that trope of like, you know, hitting rock bottom, which is a real thing. Yeah. And it's not that you can't make stories like that, but not every story about addiction, not every story about someone dealing with trauma has to play into that. It, it doesn't have to follow that same script. And it was nice to see something that was just, you know, different in that regard. And it's funny, actually, because I also realized one more trope that this breaks that I think um, maybe you disagree, but I, I know I certainly missed this one because I'm a guy, um, mm-hmm. which is most of the time, if you have a movie about a woman who has trouble living up to her full potential and along the way she pushes potential like romantic partners away. Yeah. It would be that the person that comes back into her life who saves her and who tells her it's all okay is the former romantic partner she pushed away. You right. Know? And the fact yeah. that in this one, the the you know the the person who really pulls her back up out of the uh the black pit she's gotten into is her former best friend from childhood where there's yeah. no romantic thing whatsoever. Mm-hmm. And then is the guy who like, and then other parts of it basically are her sister. Yeah. Her sister basically does it. And then there's a guy who she had a crush on, but they really are much better as friends. And like, I mean, there's never that moment where like she gets that perfect kiss and it makes everything okay. And right. frankly, that is a really common trope as well. And this also supports oh, yeah. that. And that's also really, really nice. Yeah. And it's like, from the point at the end where she decides to just go play chess in the park, like she, she might have some happy relationships after that. She might not, we don't know, you know, but like, that's not what the story was about. And so that didn't, you know, they didn't use that to like 
bring her back around, essentially. Mm-hmm. Like, she didn't, like, get redemption through the love of a good man or something, you know. Yeah, exactly. Redemption, right. or she didn't, like, him loving her and him seeing the good in her allows her to see the good in herself or all those kind of things that we've just seen. Like, and again, like, that can happen. But again, that, right. it's just, it, it is such a sexist trope and one that's told so often. Um, yeah. In, instead, they fridge the groundskeeper and then uh, the <laughs> yeah. custodian. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's definitely like it is his funeral that is like the the motivating factor for everything. Yeah, that um, kind of turns it around. But. Yeah. Um. Okay. So I think that's uh. I, I okay. Let me start that again. So yeah, that that kind of wraps up the show. But in terms of the the tropes themselves, um, because we were kind of kind of melding two things here together that I think fit well, but are kind of two different tracks. Is there any more stuff about tropes themselves or about any other particular tropes that you wanted to talk about being either good or bad? To, to me, tropes are just like, there should be more stories. There should be more people writing stories, different people writing stories and different people writing different stories, mm. you know? And I think as a result, you can have a bunch of stories that do one thing. And then you can have a bunch of other stories that don't do that thing. And, you know, I, I would like to just see a wider variety of fiction in in all just in all dimensions basically. And yeah. so when it comes to tropes, it's like, yeah, if you're writing a story, like be aware if something you're doing is like really leaning into a trope. Be aware if that's like a damaging trope or if it's just kind of like sort of cliché feeling, but mm-hmm. like that doesn't mean you can't do it. It just means be aware of what's going on with that and and don't always do everything that way and this i mean this is a podcast not like a writing uh class right <laughs> but like you know the, the the point just being it's like variety is good and um having some twists on something that's familiar sometimes can make it fresh and if you have some things that don't go the way that we would really expect them to, then you can have other things go the way that we do expect them to. And that's not going to feel just like super like generic and boring and like eye rolly kind of, yeah. I think. Yeah. I, I think that's a really good way to put it. I think you actually, and you also touched on something that is really super important to this whole conversation that we really both missed up until this point, which is that, a big part of where tropes come from is who's writing them, you know, and yeah. that if you are, especially the problematic ones we're talking about, you know, and that if it's, yeah. if it's white, when, a, when white guys are writing, like, and I'm a white guy, I say this is myself, like, you know, you're much more likely to write about a person of color or a woman in terms of how they relate to the people, you know, you know, and it's not universal by any means, but it, but it's, you know, when you have more women writing, you're going to get more nuanced stories about women. When you have more people of color writing, you know, when you're more gay people, like whatever it is. Um, I, I haven't even touched on how I myself as a disabled person, um, probably the, the trope I hate the most is the disabled person who gets a superpower that basically like fixes their disability. Right. You know? Right. Um, and it's why I really love like the few stories we get were like um, Toph to me in Avatar. The last airbender is such a good example where, she is able to be a superpower superhero for all intents and purposes, even yeah. though she's blind mm-hmm. and, but she is still blind, you know, it's right. whereas like daredevil is basically not blind, you know, like right. he has to like have someone read something to him. But other than that, um, but yeah, it's, I think that to me is maybe the, even the biggest takeaway about tropes is like when more people are writing things, we're going to get less tropes, you know, when more different kind of people are writing things. Um, right, or we're going to get a wider variety of tropes that kind of balance each other out a lot of the time, yeah. I think. Yeah, for sure. For sure. 
Well, cool. I think this was a great discussion. I'm really glad you brought this to me. Um, folks, if you have not seen um, Queen's Gambit, I hope we have not totally ruined it for you. Because I, I still think, like we said, like a lot of the best storytelling, even if you think it's a trope, even if you know what's going to happen, is the way it gets from A to B. And I, I really think this is a wonderful, wonderful show that is, that is very worth watching. And, and frankly, um, my, my partner's now gotten into it, and I'm going to watch it again. And I certainly don't think it's going to suffer from having seen it before. Um, so thank you, Paul, for being a part of this conversation. Um, for everyone else, um, what did you think of the show? What do you think about tropes? What are some of your favorite tropes, your least favorite tropes? Write in, let us know. You can find us on Facebook, on Twitter. You can email us. All the information can be found by going to strandedpanda.com and then going to the Superhero Ethics uh, page on there or just going to superheroethics.com. That'll take you to the same place. Um, I want to do a quick plug. My, my other podcast, the uh, Star Wars Universe podcast, we're getting super excited because um, Friday... October 30th, the day after this episode goes up, Mandalorian Season 2 is coming back. And we are really excited. We're going to be doing, uh, every week, we're going to kind of do a double header. The new episode of Mando will come out on Friday, uh, Friday night at 7.30 p.m. uh, Central Time, 8.30 Eastern. Uh, We'll be doing a a live online watch party where you can sign on uh, and watch along with us at the exact same time and be in a chat room. Uh, Paul's going to try and be a part of that sometimes. Uh, Jeff Randall and Ashley Coffin are going to try and be a part of that. Uh, a couple other great people who are on the Star Wars or other Superhero Ethics podcasts or other Stranded Panda podcasts. And then often that Friday night, or uh, at least by Sunday, we're going to also always record a podcast episode where we talk about that episode of Mandalorian, talk about what happened, talk about what we loved, maybe what we didn't like, how it fits into the story. Uh, and uh, just yesterday, Paul and I, um, along with Ashley Coffin, did an episode where we kind of looked back on season one of Mandalorian and talked about all the things we're excited for about season two, different theories, different ideas, you know, what's happening with the Black Saber, what's happening with the, the Mandalorians, and the Creed, and where does baby Yoda come from, how much we really, really don't want him to be Yoda's grandson, uh, you know, all that kind of stuff. So, Check that all out. It's all on superhero. Uh, it's all on. It is all on the Star Wars Universe podcast page, also on strandedpanda.com. And you can also find that on Facebook, on Twitter, all those places. So, on behalf of myself, Paul, everybody involved with this, thank you so much. Thanks for listening. Have a great day. <laughs> <laughs>